All right. Hello, everyone. My name is Kevin Avertel, and I am the Democracy Commitment Coordinator at Moraine Valley Community College. Thank you so much for uh, attending our first WebEx event this semester for the Democracy Commitment. I really want to thank uh, Professor Josh Fulton and Jim McIntyre for volunteering their insights today. This was actually the brainchild of Jim and Josh, who reached out to me last semester about having a democracy, uh, political science history teach-in where we uh, discuss a topic that could highlight connections between our disciplines. And this pandemic um, is a perfect opportunity to explore history and political science. So I really want to thank them. Um, I also want to thank Multimedia and IT. They hooked me up with this sweet uh, headset today. And uh, they've been helping us with all of the technical difficulties that we've uh, uh, been trying to, to learn and navigate this very first uh, uh, WebEx event. So thank you, Randy, Mark, Amanda, and I also want to thank Troy Swanson for all of his help in getting this first event started today too. So we should have uh, a chat function available for um, attendees. If you have questions throughout today's presentation, um, I encourage you to type out questions in the chat box and we will reserve the final 25, 30 minutes or so of today's event for questions and comments. So um, at this point, I would like to turn it over uh, to Professor Jim McIntyre, who uh, will start us off today. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Kevin. And actually, um, Randy, could you give me the share function so I can throw up my PowerPoint here? Thank you, sir. So, okay, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Um, so look, the first actual epidemic that I'm going to talk about because it is such a major watershed in history, though I'm also going to point out that there are some problems, is the Black Death, right? The bubonic plague that strikes um, the Levant and Europe in 1348 to 1350. So if you look on the map here, we see that it actually starts out in Myanmar, um, labeled on the map as Burma, in around, somewhere around 1320, and it follows the trade routes west. Um, it hits Damascus and Athens in 1347, and by 1348, it's made its way you know, as far as Mecca and Paris. Now, scholars debate a great deal about a number of things related to the Black Death. Um, how many people actually died? Well, we don't know because there's just a, a dearth of records. Also, uh, some argue that the Black Death may not have been as bad. And by the way, if you're wondering, we call it the Black Death because of the symptoms. Um, people would start to get black blotches, which was actually their capillaries breaking down. Essentially, they were bruising from the inside out. And that was the stage at which you were going to die. At any rate, um, as the plague makes its way through, they, they say that, well, you know, the plague takes a while to manifest. So maybe other diseases, you know, people who died from those were wrapped into this as well. Um, 
at any rate, society really didn't know how to respond, nor government. Again, we're dealing with monarchies um, that, are, that really didn't have a great deal of power. Um, those in, at the local level, it was all they could do really to dispose of the bodies. Uh, part of that too is, as we see here, right? Uh, medieval cities were very close knit, if you will. Uh, so contagions could spread fairly quickly and easily. Okay. Um, moving on now, there are certainly other epidemics that I could talk about. Uh, I could certainly talk about the European invasion of the Americas and the role disease played in that. And so I think it's worth a minute to say why I'm not. Um, when we talk about Europeans coming to the Americas, we're talking about a whole list of diseases. And so we kind of wanted to focus in on just specific epidemics. Uh, so in this case that I'm moving to, right, we have the smallpox epidemic of 1775 to 82. Uh, this affects North America. And uh, so I'll start off talking about the effect on the colonies, uh, the 13 seaboard colonies of the British Empire. And here it has a profound effect. We have the War of Independence going on. And for instance, um, George Washington did not want to occupy Boston after the British left due to concerns over a reported smallpox outbreak in the city. And now Washington himself had already had the disease and survived. Uh, eventually, as th this disease ravages his troops, um, mainly in the Canadian theater, he orders inoculation. Now, this was a very new and fairly controversial idea in the colonies at the time. And it's also problematic because they essentially took live bacilli. They took a live sample of the disease. Today, our inoculations are a sample that's been turned off, if you will. So you would get a mild form of smallpox that you would hopefully survive, though not everyone does. But then you would have an immunity. However, you would also then be a carrier. So there, it does come with some problems. Um, moving on, in 1779, this breaks out in Mexico City, smallpox does. Uh, it moves into the interior through what is now Texas, the Southwest. It may have affected uh, the Shoshone tribe as well as the Comanche. It makes its way to the West Coast, to the Pacific Northwest and through the Hudson Bay Company and their fur trading connections, we see here it may have moved eastward from Western Canada all the way back to, okay, um, or all the way to the Hudson Bay area. Um, at any rate, okay, some things are worth commenting on at this point, and, and I kind of skipped this with the play too. One thing people realized was that towns were affected to a greater degree than rural areas um, due to the concentration of population. And so those who could left, and we see that with smallpox as well. In addition, we see with smallpox, um, this issue of the governments are very minimal. And so there's very little they can do. And this is especially so on the West Coast, um, we think, this smallpox outbreak may have actually claimed the lives of about 140,000 people in North America. However, that's not clear. Again, dearth of records, which is another problem. Um, 
Finally, my last epidemic. Uh, these are the docks in Philadelphia. Okay. And so in 1793, we have this yellow fever epidemic, which begins when ships coming from the Caribbean, where yellow fever is already raging, come into Philadelphia. And some people must have avoided the quarantine. They, they are realizing this, uh, that newcomers can bring with them disease. And so they actually had uh, these establishments just outside of the ports called, well, the pest house or the death house. So think of that, you come to a new area, right? And your first experience is, welcome, come to our death house. Right? We're gonna keep you here for a few weeks to make sure you don't die of anything and then we'll let you in. Um, also by 1793, the revolution's over, we have the federal government and the capital was actually Philadelphia. So the first response of the national government was to leave the city uh, because again, they're worried about this contagion, okay? I should explain yellow fever briefly as well. Um, it is a tropical disease spread by mosquitoes, uh, comes with high fever, body aches, and yellow jaundiced or yellowed skin and eyes, thus the name. And so as this starts to spread, it is very evident on people physically. Um, Benjamin Rush, pictured here, who was one of the major influential members of Philadelphia society at the time. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was also a very well-respected physician. He had prescribed for Washington at times. And he had this theory that African-Americans would not be as affected by the disease. Now, he doesn't really have a basis for this, but he does uh, speak with several leaders of the Philadelphia African-American community and he convinces them to convince their people to stay and help tend to the sick. Uh, many in Philadelphia, the population was about 50,000 at this point, and about 20,000 of them left. Um, many African-Americans did stay. They've worked in a number of occupations from porters to nurses to grave diggers. In the end, obviously, Rush was wrong. Um, about 5,000 people died. Out of those, about 400 were African-Americans. So, and, and the epidemic itself doesn't end until November of 1793. It ends with the cold weather, which kills off the mosquitoes. So it really isn't a treatment. Uh, interestingly, Alexander Hamilton was infected with the, with the disease. Um, and his doctor prescribed for him a combination of Madeira wine and quinine, or Peruvian And quinine might actually have saved him. Um, so we're getting up to the 19th century by now. And so we have some uh, early attempts at addressing disease, but there's still some inhibitors. Uh, the, the germ theory has not gained universal acceptance. And there are quite a few in North America and Europe uh, and globally, who, who just kind of accept that every now and then we're going to have an epidemic. Well, a major figure in changing this is, of course, Louis Pasteur. Uh, he takes his doctorate for, in medicine from Ecole Normale in Paris in 1848. And he that same year, he becomes professor of chemistry at the University of Strasbourg and starts investigating um, the 
impurities in the fermentation process of wine. Important part of the French economy, important part of French culture. And he starts establishing this idea that these microbes can lead to disease. And his work really helps to gain the widespread acceptance of the germ theory. He eventually comes up with a process where these microbes can be removed, these impurities removed, right, which we call pasteurization. So we can remove the impurities from wine, beer, and milk. Um, that's important, I guess. So he, at any rate, and, and you start seeing this connection between different scientists. Um, Joseph Lister, a surgeon in Britain, realizes that about half of his amputee patients die from some form of infection. And he reads Pasteur's articles on his research, and he starts, Lister starts using phenol as a disinfectant. And he has a 15% increase in survival rates in his ward in four years. So this is a major sort of turning point. Both of these men really help get um, the germ theory to gain wide acceptance. And as that happens in the latter 19th century, we start to see governments being more influenced by science. And I'm, I'm gonna end with this and pass on to my colleague. We start seeing the redesign of cities first in Europe. This is a view of Paris in the late 19th century. And under Napoleon III, they remove, they, they get rid of a lot of the medieval city, right? That slide, that picture I showed on slide four of the very cramped conditions. We now have wide boulevards, lots of space because they're realizing, right, if we have more space, the germs can't travel that far to infect people. So we start getting this redesign of cities. Uh, to be fair, Napoleon III did actually do this initially to have greater control over urban unrest, but they quickly realized that when we achieve and maintain sanitary conditions, uh, the risk of contagion declines significantly. Josh, now on to you. Well, thank you, Professor McIntyre. Thank you. Uh, I think that your point about the role of the government in facilitating urban planning uh, and facilitating that kind of development is absolutely central uh, to really thinking about the transformation of the 19th century and especially thinking about it from the perspective of government responses in combating uh, disease. Uh, no, no slides for me, Randy, so I'm okay. Uh, so what I'd like to do then is to kind of take us from uh, Professor McIntyre's point, and thank you again, Professor Navratil, for the introduction, uh, to a series of epidemics in the 19th century and then into the 20th century, and then sort of see where we can kind of go from there. So the first thing I think that we should be talking about is the series of cholera epidemics in the 19th century. This is something that Professor McIntyre alluded to at the time that the germ theory, of course, is developing. Uh, perhaps the most threatening viral disease to the American public in the first half of the 19th century. These cholera epidemics affected America's urbanization and our changing demographics because prior to those redesigning of cities, the sanitation still is pretty poor. Uh, and what you end up seeing as an out sort of come of this is a real emphasis, not just on urban planning, but on government-led public health initiatives. 
you know, this is something that is certainly true, for example, in the early years of the incorporation of the city of Chicago. Uh, so beginning in 1832, there was a cholera outbreak. Uh, the aftermath of that leads to the creation of the Board of Health uh, in the city of Chicago, whether you like it or not, you know, uh, when it comes to that. Uh, there were additional outbreaks in the city in the 1850s and again in the 1860s. New York, especially in 1849, uh, as part of a global cholera pandemic, uh, also experienced this as well. Uh, and, you know, we even have uh, our, our own fair share of uh, myths and fake news in history. Uh, there was uh, chronicled later in the 20th century a supposed mythical epidemic of cholera that hit the city of Chicago in 1885. Uh, and if we're looking for um, sort of politicized things that lead to infrastructure boondoggles, uh, certainly the construction of the deep tunnel uh, in and around the city of Chicago would be a good example of that. Uh, there were stories after World War II about a disastrous cholera epidemic that had hit the city in 1885 uh, that killed thousands. Uh, now, cholera had hit the city of Chicago. The only problem is it didn't hit in 1885 and it didn't kill thousands. Uh, and but what came from that uh, was widespread political support for the construction of this very large infrastructure project with the idea being you had to get the, the sewer water away. You had to get the rainwater away. You had to maintain clean water because if you didn't, you're going to get a cholera epidemic again. Uh, and, you know, there was a real feeling that that would be the case. And that that's partly what sort of led to that. Now, another example of a 19th century uh, pandemic or epidemic that Americans had to grapple with would, of course, be the series of typhoid fever outbreaks of the 1890s and the early 1900s. Right as Professor McIntyre was stating that you have these cities that are transforming, that you also have this sort of recognition on the part of some uh, that germ theory is a thing uh, and needs really truly to be grappled with. Uh, perhaps most famously in the 1890s, right, you have the case of Mary Malin or Malone, right, or Typhoid Mary, uh, who as an asymptomatic carrier uh, of this particular disease really reflected some of the troubles in the transformation of America's industrializing society in the 1890s and the early 1900s. Most urban areas at that time uh, are going to have first or second generation immigrant communities, fairly sizable. Uh, and there was a feeling that they were, of course, to blame uh, when it came to the public health problems that existed within America at the time. For those thinking or looking close to home, we can make connections with these typhoid outbreaks again in the city of Chicago in 1892, right as the World's Columbian Exposition is coming to town. Uh, there was a typhoid outbreak that led to a great concern on the part of Chicago's politicians uh, that basically not as many people would show up. Uh, that you wouldn't get the same amount of money that you were anticipating getting from so many individuals. Uh, and so what this actually contributes to certainly is the reversing of the flow of Chicago River, along with a number of other things that contributed to that. But one of the other things that it actually contributed to was an emphasis on the industrial manufacturing of water, 
uh, as something. Uh, there was a company that was present at uh, the Columbian Exposition called Waukesha Hygieia, Hygieia, uh, H-Y-G-E-I-A. Uh, they manufactured what they called clean water and sold it in bottles. Uh, and the whole idea was basically drink our water and you won't get typhus. Uh, and, you know, this was was really sort of quite something. I know growing up in the 1980s and 90s, the presence of bottled water, I thought was a fairly new thing. Not so much, uh, you know, not not particularly, you know, not at all. Uh, and again, typhoid was a was a pretty terrible killer. Now, uh, another example of uh, something that would be considered epidemic that required the government to respond would certainly be tuberculosis uh, or what was also referred to often as consumption uh, or in years past referred to as what was called the king's evil. Concerns about it also defined a number of America's public health efforts in the early 20th century. Building off of germ theory, you see an era of medical professionalization. Uh, and that professionalization of the medical community, it has certain positives and certain negatives that reflected racialized views of the world at the time. Uh, and what you will then see uh, is an assumption of those linked to public health initiatives and government responses. So treatments varied uh, as far as consumption was concerned. Uh, lots of recommendations for travel uh, and what was called the fresh air cure. Uh, so uh, if you've you know seen some of the, the films with uh, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and Doc Holliday has to go out west to get his consumption cure and sort of that, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of alluding to that. Uh, it also relates to the construction of specialty hospitals, the importance of sanitariums as well. Another component to this, before we mention the Spanish flu, which isn't from Spain, one of the things that we should sort of address when it comes to government aspects of this is what might be considered public fear about pandemics and where they come from. So late 19th, early 20th century in America, you have a very large influx of immigrants from across the globe coming to the United States. Now, primarily they're coming from across Europe, but again, it's coming from across the globe. These new immigrants, of course, are going to face any number of uphill battles, but public health officials and upper class individuals in this particular period placed a large portion of the blame for society's ills and especially for disease outbreaks squarely on them uh, and on their communities. Uh, Americans blamed these individuals of numerous what they called races for spreading disease. This is the era of racial science. This is an era of social hygiene theories that are given uh, support uh, by the, the federal government and by state governments. This is the era of the rise of eugenics uh, and its widespread support as for many as well. Uh, so again, this blame shapes public health institutions uh, in the years before America is going to grapple with the biggest pandemic it had ever experienced up until now. Uh, this is the era in which, um, for example, in the 
uh, the Chinese American, Chinese immigrant community, Chinatown community in San Francisco at the turn of the century. There's a plague outbreak, uh, right? Obviously, it must be because of the fact that these are individuals who are from China. This is what public health officials are saying. This is the era in which America's federal public health service is created. This is the era in which it was mandated that immigration officials at Ellis Island were to look for things like trachoma and favas uh, and were to supposedly weed out uh, indiv some individuals uh, coming into the United States. Now, uh, perhaps the uh, largest, uh, you know, example of a pandemic or an epidemic that America's had to grapple with uh, up until now would be the Spanish flu. Now, we should, of course, you know, get our terms straight uh, that the Spanish flu didn't come from Spain. Uh, you know, that would be, you know, one thing for us to acknowledge. Uh, and for those who are, are unaware, this was a pandemic that hit the world between 1918 and 1919. Generally, there are three waves. Uh, variations of these deadly strains of the flu uh, partly originated or likely originated from Kansas. And the flu spread virally due to a lacking medical knowledge and public health knowledge at the time. We should also acknowledge that World War I and the ongoing efforts to maintain allied uh, support for the war also contributed to why this was able to spread so rapidly. Uh, perhaps the most noted second wave, which hit in the fall of 1918 uh, and shut down major American cities, in September and October of 1918, killed nearly over 200,000 uh, Americans. Now, by the third wave, uh, again, we don't, like Professor McIntyre was saying when it comes to the Black Death, we don't know the full death total. More recently, scholars have raised uh, this to potentially between 50 and 100 million people. Uh, which is an absolutely terrible thing. Uh, and we're talking about this particular kind of flu. This is something where uh, essentially someone would be dead between 12 to 18 hours, right? This is sort of what we're talking about with this. Now, to put a sort of final sort of element on this, right? You know, we might also mention, of course, uh, polio uh, and its outbreaks in the first half of the 20th century, where what you end up seeing is a series of epidemics in the 1890s and a larger one in 1916. Uh, but again, since World War I is ongoing, there's really a feeling of this isn't as big of a larger national concern. But with the vaccine that enters in after World War II, things will change. One of the things that, of course, troubled many physicians and those researching uh, polio itself in the first half of the 20th century, and one of the things that made public or government responses perhaps difficult uh, also was that there was an assumption on the part of earlier epidemic outbreaks that those outbreaks largely hit working class or working poor communities, whereas polio didn't distinguish on the basis of class or race. Uh, you had middle, upper middle class and very wealthy young people and others, uh, perhaps most famously the future president, Franklin Roosevelt, who contracted it. Uh, which I think made, you know, some of the uh, way to perhaps combat this very difficult. All right, Professor Navratil. Thank you very much, Professor Fulton. And um, Randy, if you can help me become the presenter at this time, I would appreciate it. I 
Okay, great. I am able to share my screen now. Um, and I wanted to start with, um, I'm kind of changing what I planned on covering a little bit based on um, what has come before me. So um, the first thing that I wanted to do is be able to share my screen. And I wanted to start with a couple of charts. And this is coming from our world in data, uh, COVID-19 data. And I urge any of you who are interested uh, to browse through this site. It, it, it has 180 countries. They've got about 17 different indicators that they use to assess how stringent government's response have been. And I'm only gonna show two charts just for the simplicity of time. But, um, uh, and I also selected some countries based on um, kind of a dependent variable. And that is, I wanted to show a contrast between you know, the United States and some other similar advanced industrialized democracies uh, to kind of show um, significant differences in two key areas. One is the total number of confirmed deaths. So this is about a week ago, uh, September 9th, where the United States was, was you know, steadily approaching 200,000 deaths. And um, you can see the, the other uh, listed countries here between the United Kingdom all the way down to Taiwan. Um, and um, to me, this really stands out. And the, the reason I decided to include this, you know, uh, Professor Fulton was just talking about um, with previous epidemics, you know, just really the lack of medical knowledge. And, um, you know, back when we started talking about this event, which I want to say was early March, I just wouldn't have imagined that this chart that we're currently looking at would you know, be the case for the United States. Um, and I also wanted to just show, you know, total number of um, uh, COVID cases per million of uh, people. So this is um, per capita to, to try to make these comparisons, um, you know, comparing apples to apples and you see the same selected countries again and, and the United States stands out uh, quite significantly in this area as well. And, you know, I just want to point out that I think there's a lot of strengths that the United States has, you know, compared to what uh, Professor Fulton said, we have amazing medical community. Um, we have medical workers who are working tirelessly overtime. Um, we, you know, we have many of the top hospitals in the world. You know, we're one of the richest countries in the world. Um, our, G our, our healthcare spending per GDP, um, is, is the highest in the world, you know, and we had some benefits geographically as far as our, our distance from the epicenter of, of the outbreak in Wuhan, China. Um, we had some more time to respond. So uh, for me to see these, the, to, you know, that the United States has about 20 to 25% of the total deaths, um, despite having 5% of the population is a true tragedy. Um, and I think if we look at some of these success stories of, of countries that seemingly have handled it better thus far, um, there's a lot of different data that we could look at to examine some of the reasons for their success. But I wanted to give kind of a macro picture and, and maybe pick some factors that, that are often less discussed. And certainly there's a lot of blame to go around, perhaps uh, for certain governments like the United States, of how we could have responded differently. 
But I do think there's some structural issues that we need to address um, to, to help us understand why maybe the United States wasn't as best suited as they could have been to respond to this uh, pandemic. So one thing uh, right off the bat is that the framers of the United States Constitution created a system to make it hard to have rapid um, radical change, you know, separation of powers, checks and balances, taking uh, the legislative body and splitting it in two with the House and Senate. All of these mechanisms are, are ways of slowing down um, you know, the political process, making, you know, making it harder to get things done. If you contrast that with what most uh, industrialized democracies have, a parliamentary system that literally takes the executive and, and, and uh, executive and legislative and fuses them together, it allows for, you know, quick, quicker, um, you know, a comprehensive, significant action. Um, and then on top of that, I think this is really key, and um, I'd, I'd like to spend some more time on this, is, is, is really looking at um, the uh, unitary versus um, um, federal system. Um, and, and, and the key difference here is that seven out of eight, eight countries in the world have a unitary system where most of the power is, is concentrated at the national level. Um, the United States, of course, were colonies and then states before we were the United States and um, were really worried about tyranny and, and so really wanted to, you know, limit the powers of the national government and explicitly give specific powers to the state governments. And one of those key powers is really, um, you know, we, the 10th Amendment of the Constitution essentially reserves any powers not explicitly given to the national government are reserved to the states. And we often refer to these as police powers, but to protect the health, safety, welfare, and morals of, of the citizens of the respective states is a state power. Um, so the reason I bring this up is when you look at the success stories of, you know, some of the countries, whether it's uh, New Zealand, Germany, um, uh, Taiwan, um, South Korea, and the list goes on and on, they've had a lot of uh, amazing, you know, and, and really quite comprehensive government interventions, travel bans, quarantines, masking, you know, um, limiting gatherings, contract tracing, smartphone tra uh, tracking, the list goes on and on. In the United States, we have had some of those pretty stringent um, policies at various state level, you know, with some states, I'm thinking of New York or New Jersey and at times Illinois, um, whereas other states like South Dakota, Oklahoma, Utah have essentially had very limited interventions. And so having, you know, one of the benefits of federalism is it allows for flexibility and allows for uniqueness. And, you know, when we were discussing the, the cholera epidemic in the, in the late 1800s earlier, you know, this, this federalism and, and public health response was, was initially uh, institutionalized almost at that time that, um, you know, three-fourths of all of the um, uh, people coming from, from boat traffic um, from, from Europe were going through New York. So it made some sense to have New York have their own stricter policies um, regarding um, 
you know, uh, being able to quarantine people coming into the United States um, who were suspected of having, um, you know, a disease. So, but in, in today, in 2020, to have, you know, border states that have significantly lax um, uh, interventions and and, and limits in, in, in government policies next to states that um, have more stringent ones effectively leads to kind of a whack-a-mole scenario where we, we really have a piecemeal um, patchwork system in the United States um, that makes it really hard to have a comprehensive um, nationwide uniform response to this pandemic. And so those are structural issues that precede any specific political leader. Um, and I'm gonna to get to political leadership in a moment, but I think we have to understand some of the challenges that um, the United States just inherently has based on that federalism system. Uh, and I don't wanna completely throw federalism under the bus, uh, has a lot of great benefits, um, even in the, in the terms of, of pandemics that can allow for some states experimentation allows them to kind of go their own way. Um, you know, maybe early on in the pandemic, it didn't make a lot of sense for Wyoming um, and other country or other states to have a really strict response when they didn't really have any cases at that time, whereas other states had huge outbreaks. I do understand that. Um, but I just wanna kind of talk about those limitations. The next aspect I wanted to talk about was political culture. And this is something that regardless of how strict our interventions are from the government level, policies only work if the people follow them. I think one of the successes, if you look to South Korea um, and to um, places like Taiwan and, 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 and Finland and Denmark, is they've really uh, put society before themselves. Um, they're more public oriented. And, and I'd be happy to get into reasons maybe why that's the case. But in the United States, there's always, uh, you know, historically, I would say this, this view of kind of rugged individualism and more, you know, personal freedom, privacy oriented, skepticism of government, lack of trust of government, uh, and, you know, not wanting the government to tell us what to do. I think Holistically, you could say the United States is more conservative than most of those countries I showed earlier who are having more success um, responding to this pandemic. Um, and I'm not trying to cast judgment on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I just think generally speaking, we tend to be um, less willing to maybe have the contact tracing, um, quarantines, um, and, and maybe using phone apps that track, you know, the contacts that we're with and, and, and who we might have been around who've tested positive. And I think that's something, you know, that's part of our political culture that might be difficult to change. Um, you know, masking. Uh, many people in the United States feel like wearing a mask is a, a personal privacy issue and something that the government shouldn't have power to tell us what to do. Um, and so even states like Illinois that, you know, have required masks in, in, in places that uh, don't allow for social distancing, there's many, many individuals who, who have simply not abided by those um, uh, requests and restrictions. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, I'd be happy to talk more about that aspect. Um, and then lastly, political leadership. Um, I guess before I, I, I get to um, the political leadership. I just wanted to point out that 
you know, it, trust in government is not something that just uh, declined recently. It's something that has been, generally speaking, since Watergate, it's been on the, it's, it's, it's since in the late 70s, it's been on the decline, absent of, you know, the, the Gulf War and 9-11, um, generally public trust in government has been on the decline. Um, and typically, I think it's important to point out that um, in times of crisis, we tend to rally around um, our leaders and become more united. And I wanted to point out that um, just looking at public opinion surveys about how well various countries have said their countries, how well they've done in responding to this crisis, the United States and the United Kingdom really stand out that, um, you know, uh, most of us, uh, most of the Americans don't feel that the, the, the government has done a good job. Um, whereas some of those countries I was showing you earlier give really, really high marks to their government's response. Um, and then perhaps more telling, I think, is, is the country more united now than before the coronavirus outbreak? And here the United States really stands alone. Only 18% of people feel the country is more united than before. And again, to contrast that with some other countries like Denmark, 72% uh, of their respondents felt more unified. Like this was um, a challenge that they were facing together as a country and it resulted in more unity. Um, there's a lot I could say about political leadership. Um, I, I'll, I'll highlight a couple. Um, I wanted to point out um, in, in Taiwan, um, the Central Epidemic Command Center started up before the country's very first case. They issued 120 action items within the first three weeks. Taiwan's vice president is an epidemiologist. Um, I'd also highlight Germany. Um, many people refer to uh, Chancellor Merkel as a scientist in chief. She uses a lot of data to make decisions. Um, I think she pretty early on told her um, country that 70% of their citizens were going to contract um, uh, the coronavirus. Um, I think she was blunt in telling people how serious that this pandemic was. Um, I, I could, you know, spend a lot of time on this, but I think many of you have, have pro probably heard criticisms of President Trump. Um, but I think in many ways he's minimized. I think he said that himself, that he's downplayed the significance of COVID-19. Um, I think there's 31 examples of him saying that, you know, we were either going to go down to zero cases or that it was going to go away very soon. Um, you know, there's been more recent um, statements that have come out with uh, the Bob Woodward book um, from the Washington Post uh, with some with some statements from Trump where he's, where he's clearly saying to, to Bob Woodward, the journalist, you just breathe the air and that's how it's passed. It's a very tricky one. It's a very delicate one. It's more deadly than your strenuous flu. This is deadly stuff. But yet at the same time, publicly, you know, he was, he was saying basically the opposite, that it wasn't worse than the seasonal flu. It's going to disappear soon, that the government has it under control. Um, so, there's been a pretty significant di difference in, in political leadership. I would just point out, um, to be fair, with federalism, we have a lot of different leaders, right? We have governors, uh, we have mayors, and some of us may live in areas where, you know, the mayor uh, has strict uh, uh, response uh, to, to 
COVID-19, whereas maybe the, the governor does not. Um, I'm thinking of some places like Nebraska where, where you know, some cities, uh, the mayors and the, and the governors have, have conflicted over this. And we've seen governors um, conflict with the president and the federal government. Um, so again, I just wanna highlight that, that the system in, in many ways makes it more challenging to respond to this in a coherent way. I see that there's some really great questions um, already coming in through the chat. So I'm gonna stop and leave it there and uh, turn it back over to my colleagues to help answer some of these um, questions that are coming in through the chat. And feel free if anybody has additional questions, uh, we still have a good 15 minutes to respond to them. Okay, so I guess I will start with the first question. Um, about is this, uh, has the digital revolution provided a significant uniqueness in our response or is the process simply a reiteration, albeit modified of our, of prior practice? Um, I think that there is, I think that each one of these epidemics that we've touched upon here today has its own unique attributes. Um, we, while we were looking for commonalities, big picture, I think that you can say that any moment in time is going to have its own sort of unique characteristics. So certainly, if we're talking about the spread of information, also the rapid, like the rapid spread of information, the rapid spread of disinformation, I, I think we're, that has definitely, that is something unique to this particular epic we're living through. What else's thoughts on that? I'm sorry, Jim, I was trying to read through yeah. these questions and, and um, there there's so many good ones here and I was trying to see if I could connect a, a couple of them. Um, one of them um, was, and I'm just going to read it just for the recording of this. Um, the idea of political culture, uh, what do you think would the US or other governments need to do to try to increase that trust with their citizens? It is very interesting to see how much citizens in other countries have faith in their, in their country's governments. And then there was a, another question or comment uh, that I wanted to point out. It's clear that trust issues and the perception of individualism in our culture is a clear separator when it comes to outcomes in a recent pandemic. I can't help but suspect that anti-intellectual, anti-government movements um, in the last decades combined with neoliberalist ideology helped feed this mentality. Reagan's, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, certainly didn't help. And, you know, I, I think those comments are really hitting on a, a key point. And what I wanted to do when I showed that that lack of trust is, that means whoever the president was in 2016, um, who was elected in 2016 to deal with this crisis is I think fighting this fight with one hand tied behind their back in the sense that if the public isn't really trusting of government policies, that makes it harder. You know, you can have the best policies um, coming from the government, but if citizens don't trust 
you know, if, if we don't believe in vaccines, if we don't believe in masking, if we don't believe in social distance, if we don't understand the significance of limiting public events or staying home if we're sick, you know, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm literally hearing these, these stories of people who, who knew that they were exposed, who tested positive, who are still going into work. I mean, that's, that's tough to legislate or fix through government action. And, you know, I, I, I think that anti-intellectualism is a key point there. And, and um, you've probably, you know, there's been videos of interviews with people of, of, you know, and I'm really not trying to politicize this, but I guess I'm trying to say it shouldn't be politicized with wearing masks and some basic measures that, uh, you know, data, research, evidence has proven to be effective. Um, and, you know, that in some of these interviews where people are saying why they believe it's an infringement of their of their freedom to 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 not mask or to 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 have to wear a mask, you know, it it, it really kind of loses um it it doesn't jive well with the idea that we always have limited freedoms. Um, we have limited freedoms when they infringe upon the freedoms of others, right? Like I have freedom from Jim's germs. <laughs> Jim doesn't have the right to infect me if he <laughs> You know, um, and so we wear masks and keep our distance so that we don't get each other sick. And there was an excellent piece in the Atlantic from George Packer, who is kind of getting at in the last several decades. There's just been a rise of of uh, freedom in all aspects of American society uh, of moving to more individual liberty. But my health is dependent on your health. You know, I can't. I can't separate, and I think in large societies that, you know, we have 330 million Americans in these urban environments where we have, you know, close proximity to one another, you know, it's harder for me to stay healthy if, if other people are, are sick. It's hard for me to go to the store and, and not get infected if other people are not wearing masks because they're making up some medical condition. So I don't want to over talk them, uh, you know, hog all the time here. We only have 10 minutes left. So I'm going to turn it over to my colleagues. Oh, I can, or Jim, well, I'll you? chime in just very briefly. And, and I think that sure, the, the sure. idea that we do have a number of public figures, a number of leaders who are taking a sort of anti-government stance, even though they're part of the government, the government. just yeah. further convolutes the whole issue. And and that was all I was going to add. So, Josh, uh, back to you. Sure. I in in thinking about both of your responses and some of these questions, two of them I think are are, are good to note. So there was one question later about where do we get the term Spanish flu? Uh, so the Spanish flu doesn't come from Spain. It came from. Uh, the fact that in 1918, as the First World War is raging, Spain is effectively, you know, neutral. And the king of Spain and other leaders in Spain basically, you know, contracted this particular flu. And as it spread through Europe, there was then a feeling at, that since this was the major news that was coming out of Spain, uh, that, you know, it had risen up, flown over the Pyrenees Mountains, and gone into France and Germany. Uh, now, of course, that's not how it happened, but uh, you know, the press kind of ran with this, and you know, folks started calling it the Spanish flu. Now, we tend to call it the Spanish flu today, um, 
or in the second half of the 20th century, largely because it's become a sort of common phrasing for folks to use. At the time, there were a lot of different terms for it. Uh, folks called it the flu. You know, there were different diseases um, at the time. This is one of the reasons why folks don't know how many individuals died because causes of death varied. Uh, and so they would use things, you know, like did they die from pneumonia or this kind of thing. And that partly gets to some of the other questions of our technology now and our ability to respond now and our technology to respond in the future, which to your point about anti-intellectualism anti within the government and that sort of phrasing our responses, you know, a hundred years ago, the professionalization of the medical community was largely in its infancy. And this was one of the factors that really made clear responses, collective responses, very difficult a uh, hundred years ago. You know, in 1918, it's something like one medical school in America required a college degree for admission. Uh, you know, although vaccines existed, this was still a time in which folks thought, eh, put some Vicks vapor rub on you, you should be fine. Uh, you know, whereas today there is quite a great deal of understanding of the professionalization of the medical community and that can help us as we proceed, uh, you know, and our continued support for that. But again, of course, you know, some of that's not perfect, obviously, given the nature of eugenics in the first part of the 20th century. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the technology, you know, to Kevin's point earlier and to that question uh, of you know, the ability of America's uh, healthcare industry now uh, is is a real high point. It is a real good thing. You know, the, the idea that we can have these con national conversations about vaccines so rapidly uh, within only a few months is in and of itself a marvel unseen really in much of the course of the world. The idea that, you know, we can be having this idea that there could be something within the next few six months to eight months to, you know, however you want to term it. I, I see two questions about, uh, do you think that Trump downplaying the pandemic and the virus has something to do with people not wearing a mask and not quarantining since they do not think it's a big deal? And do you think that leaders would have implemented sound and reasonable responses to the COVID-19 pandemic, such as full nation lockdown, if they didn't have to worry about their political careers? You know, I think um, to try to hit both of those simultaneously, I, I, I'll start backwards. I definitely think that the 2020 election was in the mind of President Trump. I'm sure it's been in the mind of Nancy Pelosi and uh, you know, Mitch McConnell and, and, and other people who are up for election are thinking about how it could impact the presidency, how it could impact control of the Senate and the House. Um, and so, you know, it does, if, if perhaps if we had more of the um, professional health experts, you know, epidemiologists and, and data-driven uh, efforts that could help guide our, our policy, uh, maybe that would make it different. Um, I'm not sure if the question is suggesting, you know, term limits or, you know, like in places like Mexico where the president has one single six-year term, maybe they wouldn't have to be worrying about, you know, the upcoming election. But I think it was clear from Trump's mind that any overplaying of the virus would hurt the economy, the stock market, 
and that would have a dire effect on his reelection. I'm sure that played a role. Um, you know, so so that's a, a, a interesting observation um, by a, one of the questions I received. Josh, Jim, any other questions that you picked up? Let's see here. And I think one other part that I'll throw out why, why they're, lo they're looking at the questions is that I think it's interesting to really grapple with what freedom and privacy uh, means, because I think, you know, for some people, what Taiwan and South Korea have done with, with you know, apps that track their movement on their cell phones and let them know if they've been around somebody else who's infected and, you know, then reaches out to the other people who they're around. Um, you know, we might be able to open up, open up society in a much more comprehensive way. So sometimes I think it's hard for us to have it both ways. Do you want to be able to go to a football stadium? Do you want to be able to go to a bar and restaurant? Is that your view of freedom? Um, because if, if we were to really able to do effective contact tracing and follow people who we know to be sick and the people that they were around, we might be, like other countries, be able to really kind of limit the infection from being spread um, and then be able to keep society more open. Um, so in some ways, by giving up a little bit of that, I guess, personal privacy slash freedom, you're able to have more freedom of movement um, and be able to have more of your society open. Um, and I'll turn it over to Jim and Josh to see their final comments or questions that they wanted to respond to. I think you answered one that I was picking up on, which was about how could we bypass structural difficulties of states during the next pandemic? Uh, so, so I'll go with how does the, our response and technology compare to even recent history? And technology can be a great tool but I think one of the problems that, that we're encountering even now, like you mentioned with contract, contact tracing, Kevin, is how is it implemented and how much, you know, if, if we have people who are going to refuse to wear a mask because they see it as an impingement on their per, their personal freedom, those same people are, are highly unlikely to download an app voluntarily and do contact tracing. So, so the technology's there, but, it, but we still run into this human factor and, and you know, free conceptions of freedom, free will, um, that, that can be a, an inhibitor just the same. Other thoughts, questions? I think we... There is one, one more thing that I would point out or uh, respond to with that point with um, federalism and how we might be able to have a different nationwide response. And that is, in my class yesterday, uh, we happened, my virtual class, we, were, we happened to cover federalism. And, and one of the students brought up an excellent question about what if the national government was more, did institute a more comprehensive, uniformed, aggressive approach? Perhaps, let's say we have in 2020 election, Joe Biden wins the presidency, and you know the pandemic uh, explodes again in, in um, January, February. 
Um, it, if there was some sort of really aggressive nationwide response, going back to federalism and um, the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution, it's quite possible that you would see lawsuits from conservative states governors and their attorney uh, generals, similar to the Affordable Care Act, when it, you know, federalism is a tug of war between national and state government power. And if states feel like their sovereignty and, uh, is being violated, it's quite possible that they will try to challenge any sort of uh, assertion of, of national power. So just keep that in mind that um, I think that we are going to have to live with the benefits and drawbacks of federalism as it's really baked into our constitution. So thank you so much. We're at 12 o'clock. I want to I really thank my panelists again uh, for, for volunteering their time. And I learned a lot from them. And, and I think it is really cool, as somebody pointed out, to see the way that our disciplines really interconnect to help us understand these complicated issues like a pandemic. So thank you again to Professors Fulton and McIntyre. And thank you, there was over 50 people who were uh, with us live. Thank you for for our attending our debut uh, event. I know on um, October 20th at 9.30 a.m. there will be a democracy commitment event on the Electoral College this unique system that we use to elect our president. So if you're available, um, please tune in again on WebEx. And thank you so much, everyone. I had a great time. Thank you, Kevin, for organizing this whole thing as well. Thank you. All right, take care, everyone.